calling all lovers of mystery and fans of a good story. If you haven't already heard me talk about June's journey, you're in for a treat. It's time to don your detective hat in this free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. In June's journey, you get to play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. And did I mention it's set in the glitzy 1920s? New chapters are added weekly, so you will never run out of new thrills to uncover, and you can also personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device, or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. Hey there, it's Rachel Ballinger, and I am thrilled to invite you to Rachel Uncensored, my podcast where I get real with my friends and celebrity guests, where we talk about all sorts of topics. From personal stories to hot-button issues, we cover it all. New episodes drop every Wednesday, so make sure you tune in on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Trust me, you won't want to miss out on the fun and candid conversations we have here on Rachel Uncensored. Lightspeed. Hello, and welcome to the Lightspeed Magazine Story Podcast. I am your host, Jim Freund. Lightspeed Magazine is edited by John Joseph Adams, and our podcast is produced by Skyboat Media. Today's story is The Archon, by Matthew Hughes, narrated by Paul Boehmer. This story is another episode in The Caslow Chronicles. To read or listen to the other stories in this series, visit lightspeedmagazine.com slash K-A-S-L-O. This story is copyright 2015, by Matthew Hughes. Matthew Hughes writes science fantasy. His SF novels are Fool's Errant and Fool Me Twice, Black Brilliant, Magistrum, The Commons, The Spiral Labyrinth, Template, Hespera, The Damned Busters, The Other, Costume Not Included, and Hell to Pay. His short fiction has appeared in Asimov's The Magazine of Fantasy and Science Fiction, Postscripts, Storyteller, Interzone, and a number of years' best anthologies. Nightshade Books published his short story collection, The Gist Hunter and Other Stories, in 2005. Formerly a journalist, he spent more than 25 years as a freelance speechwriter for Canadian corporate executives and political leaders. His works have been shortlisted for the Aurora, Nebula, and Philip K. Dick Awards. His webpage is matthewhughes.org. And now, buckle up. We're going to light speed. The Archon by Matthew Hughes Previously on the Caslow Chronicles Magic now rules the universe instead of science. Some power has reached out from the seventh plane to attack the wizard Diomedo Obron's Demesne amid the ruins of the technological civilization on Novo Bantry. Obron and Erm Caslow, the hard-boiled confidential operative turned wizard's henchman, must travel by dragon far up the spray to an obscure world named Old Earth 
to investigate an ancient evil. What do we call this thing? Erm Caslow said, gesturing to the smooth, opaque walls. It's not a spaceship. Diomedo Obron tapped the green, leather-bound tome he was studying. Testrone's impervious conveyance, it says here. They were inside an object that had looked to Caslow like nothing so much as an oversized version of the Silver Dome that a butler would whisk away from an aristocrat's meal. It even had a large ring on top, a ring that was now grasped by the talons of an honest-to-goodness dragon named Saunterance that was flying them through interstellar space. It's not like a ship, Caslow said. There's not even the whisper of a deep-space drive. No, said the wizard, his attention drawn back to the book. The dragon provides the motive power. But how does that work? Does Saunterance flap his wings? If so, what do they push against? Obron looked up again, wearing the expression of an uncle saddled with an over-inquisitive nephew. If I tried to explain it to you, I would first have to explain the integuments that connect the universe under the regime of sympathetic association. I have tried that a number of times before, without success. I cannot grasp the concepts. Caslow agreed. They do not make sense. Of course they don't. Making sense was an attribute of the regime of rationalism. Now it is more a matter of... The wizard sought for the right words, then continued. Of creating harmonies. Some of them plain, some of them intricately subtle. But none of them apparent to me, because you are tone-deaf. Caslow sighed. Before the universe changed its mind about how it ought to function, he had spent a lifetime acquiring skills and abilities in several difficult disciplines. He had made himself one of the top-ranked confidential operatives on Novo Bantry, one of the grand old foundational domains settled thousands of years ago when humanity was building the interstellar civilization that became the Ten Thousand Worlds. As an op, Caslow had solved mysteries that had baffled the best minds of the provost department, he had undone the intricate schemes of master criminals. He had faced down murderously capable opponents and always come out the victor. Now he was henchman to a wizard who was still learning his craft. But he was thinking, Obron will improve, has improved greatly in the time they had known each other, while Caslow felt himself to be no better than he'd been the day the crystal towers of Indoberia fell into shards of ruin. He finally asked the wizard the question that had so often arisen in his mind. Why do you keep me on? Wouldn't you be better served by someone who understood what we are doing? Obron raised his gaze from the book again. Is that what's troubling you? He pinched the bridge of his long nose and rubbed the back of a thumb across his brow. Eventually, he said, I will take on an apprentice, perhaps two, so that each can keep a jealous eye on the other. From then on, I will have to watch myself carefully. Apprentices outgrow their masters, he explained. The better ones go off to make their own marks. 
The not-so-good outstay their welcomes while they try to steal their mentors' apparatuses and libraries. There's no fear of my doing that, Caslow said. Exactly. You are the only person I can trust absolutely. In this new age of contending wills, that makes you a rare find. Oberon went back to the book, but after a moment raised his head once more and said, There are also some things that magic cannot do. At those moments, the skills of an experienced, practical man may save the day. Caslow went to his cabin and, for the first time in weeks, practiced the combat techniques of hand, foot, elbow, and knee that he had painstakingly mastered in his youth. The familiar motions calmed his mind and gave him ease. They were some days aboard the conveyance. Caslow practiced his skills, including the deft handling of knives, ropes, and sticks, Obron remained immersed in the thick green book, occasionally making notes, sometimes looking up with an almost startled expression, followed by a smile of satisfaction. On one of those occasions, Caslow said, You've discovered something important. Discovered is not the apt word, said the thaumaturge. It is not like studying a text in the old-world sense, deriving information and fitting it into facts and concepts already understood. This is more like achieving a new level in an evolving relationship of increasing complexity. But yes, the book and I are becoming more intimately involved. Caslow would have left it there. He had only the haziest idea of how a wizard formed a relationship with a book, but Obron was pursing his lips like a man who suddenly apprehends a connection between two heretofore separate points. He said, Tell me again about the entity the clickers were tending. I've told you all I saw. The wizard's gaze was intense. Tell me what you felt. Caslow did not have to make an effort to recall the emotion that had washed over him when he touched the flesh of the vast entity. It now flooded through him again as he recalled the moment. A great sadness, he said. What flavor of sadness, Obron said. The sadness of failure at some cherished goal? or the remorse for an evil act, either committed by the regretful one or allowed to be committed by another, or of separation from a loved one, never to be known again. Caslow sat in the salon and let his mind go inward. He felt a dry lump forming in his throat, and tears welling in his eyes. It feels... He began, then paused to let the emotion fill him. It feels as if I have loved and lost, and with the passion of a fool. More, I allowed my love to weaken me, so that another could use me for ends I would never have countenanced. Obron nodded, as if something had been confirmed. And is this an old regret? Very old, said Caslow, feeling a tear trickle down his cheek. And yet, 
fresh as today. Obron made a soft grunt, then went back to the book, his finger tracing a line of text. What does it mean? Caslow said. I don't know, the wizard said without looking up. I only know that it means something. More. It may mean everything. Caslow could get nothing further out of him. Another day passed. Then a small chime sounded from the roof of the conveyance. Obron looked up from his studies and made a hand motion. A segment of the wall became transparent, showing a blue-green ball set against speckled blackness. We are arriving, he said. But we haven't passed through a whimsy, said the op. Certainly we have. Without medications, why are we not mad? The conveyance is not called impervious for nothing, said the wizard. He approached the transparency, studying the rapidly expanding view of old earth. After a moment he said, Saunterance! See the desert in the northeast. That is our destination. The dragon's voice spoke from the air, just as in the days of ships' integrators. I see it. The vessel angled down so as to make a shallow entrance to the planet's atmosphere. Caslow was hard put not to think of the conveyance as a spaceship. The experience of travel was almost indistinguishable from passage on a space yacht. They were soon high above a grey ocean, gradually descending from west to east, with a large continent looming on the forward horizon. The desert for which they were bound was now out of sight, being some distance inland. Having nothing better to do, Caslow remained at the transparency while Obron went back to his literary immersion. As they neared the coastline, the op saw a coastal range of ancient peaks from which a long, mountain-spined peninsula thrust far out into the sea. At its tip sprawled a city overhung by an array of black crags. Scaling the heights was an array of spires, domes, terraces, and stairs, a vast and ancient palace complex. The city, he told the wizard, does not look to have suffered as deeply as Indoberia did. I see towers still standing, and the roads are open. I can even see movement. There are people down there. Hmm, said Obron, turning a page. Now the city passed out of sight as they overflew the end of the peninsula, heading inland. Then the floor tilted, and the metropolis came back into view as the conveyance swung in a descending arc. At the same moment, the dragon Saunterance spoke in the same quiet, neutral voice of a ship's integrator. I have encountered a problem. Obron looked up sharply. Define it. I am being drawn to that large structure atop the mountains. Resist, said the wizard. I cannot. Caslow crossed the sloping floor to his cabin, entered and emerged soon after, buckling on the harness he had devised for his weapons. He found Obron at the viewport, his face grave, fingers cradling his long chin. What is happening? The op said. The unexpected, 
The wizard turned and went to his workbench, where he took up a wand, fitted an ornate ring on one thumb, and slipped a small black book into a pocket of his robe. After a moment, he retrieved the book, opened it, read a portion of a page, then put it back in the pocket. He looked at Caslow. Do nothing without my direction. The vessel came smoothly down toward the agglomeration of buildings, spread across terraces that climbed from the middle to the upper heights. Some were clearly ancient, their surfaces weathered over millennia. Some were ruins. Their descent slowed, then slowed some more. At least we're not being shot down, Caslow said. A new voice, freighted with an air of authority, spoke from nowhere. When you have landed, you will disembark. Who speaks? Obron said. One who speaks for the Archon, said the voice. The title caused the wizard to knit his brows as if searching for a misplaced detail. He quickly sought through his shelves of books, found one, opened it, and ran a finger down a page. Then he flipped to another page and read for a few moments. His brows rose, and he assumed the expression of a man who has encountered a fact that may or may not be to his benefit. The conveyance landed. Obron gestured, and a segment of the wall slid aside. It was a short step down to the black flagstones that paved their landing place. He went out, and Caslow followed. The op found himself on a wide terrace that overlooked the city spread out between the mountains and the encircling sea. It was late afternoon, and the light from the orange sun was mellow, illuminating a vast grid of streets that, if not bustling, were not blocked by fallen masonry. The wizard looked up at the dragon. Sondrance, are you well? I am confined, said the dragon, which squatted beside their vehicle, but not uncomfortably so. On the inner edge of the terrace, a windowless stone wall rose up several times Caslow's height, as he surveyed its unbroken expanse to left and right, a crack appeared in front of him, widening to reveal a door set invisibly into the seamless surface. The voice that had spoken before said, Enter. Caslow looked to Obron. The wizard produced the black wand Caslow had acquired from Azrat Gozon weeks before. He pointed it at the doorway and said two words. Nothing happened that the op could see, but the voice said, You need fear no harm if you intend none. Enter. Obron's narrow shoulders made a tiny shrug. Then he squared them and stepped through the doorway. Caslow followed, but kept his hand on the spring gun suspended from his harness. Beyond the portal was a corridor its length lit by lumens bracketed to the wall at intervals of several paces. The illuminatives were such an ordinary sight that the op had passed the third light before he was struck by the incongruity. Lumens belonged to the age of rationality. The energies that powered them ought to have ceased being generated in the universe of sympathetic association.
he stopped and examined one. It was, indeed, a perfectly ordinary lumen, the kind that had lit a hundred billion rooms in the ten thousand worlds since time immemorial. How can this be? He said. Obron turned and beckoned him, saying, If we walk to the end of this corridor, I believe we shall find out. They walked on until the end of the passageway was in clear view, another blank wall that, as they neared it, revealed another door that swung open. Enter, said the voice, and wait. They came into a spacious office, centered on a wide antique desk, walled with bookshelves and cabinets and decorated with images, sculptures and curios of several different eons. Some of them were the most ancient objects Caslow had ever seen. He pulled his gaze from a great globe, built up of innumerable layers of intricate gold filigree, and said, Does the connectivity survive here? Am I speaking to an integrator? The voice said, The answer to your question is yes or no, depending on when you ask it. I am asking it now, said the op. The answer came from another voice. You are asking my assistant, whom I have named Old Confustable. Not long ago it was an integrator, and I expect it will be again some great time from now when you and I are mere dust. Caslow turned and saw that a narrow door had opened in the rear wall of the chamber to admit a man of early middle age dressed in a nondescript single suit of deep green with black accents. He wore nothing to indicate rank, except for the heavy ring on an index finger, white metal in which was set a green stone, incised with black runes. He came into the room, the door closing itself behind him, and took a seat behind the desk. As to what old Confustable is now, he continued, I find it better not to inquire too closely. In the dawn of a new age, one must accept help with the emphasis on gratitude while kicking curiosity to the curb. The man now studied the two visitors for a moment. He seemed to notice Caslow's spring gun for the first time. You are welcome to keep your weapon, but I must warn you not to make any untoward motions with it. My person is defended, and the systems are automatic. The op looked around the chamber. He saw nothing to alarm him, but back in his old office and lodgings, no one would have seen the devices that he had installed to protect him. The place had lumens and something that acted like an integrator. He would make sure that the weapon hung untouched on his harness. The man had now turned his attention to Obron. You would be a thaumaturge, he said. Green school. Since you arrived in a version of Testroni's impervious conveyance, may I ask how you managed to contrive one, and where you acquired a dragon? Obron had been returning the man's searching gaze with a close examination of his own, with particular attention to the intaglioed ring. You will pardon me if, for the moment, I do not care to divulge that information, he said. Ah, said the man behind the desk, of course, until we establish the nature of our relationship, which I hope will be one of amity, 
said Obron. As do I. The man laced his fingers together on the desktop and leaned forward, the ring reflecting the room's lights onto the polished surface. Let us begin by identifying ourselves. He said nothing more, making it plain that the first admission must be theirs. Obron did not hesitate, but named himself and Caslow, and said that they had come from the foundational domain of Novobantry. Novobantry? said the man, in a tone that said the world was familiar to him. He then said, Old Confustable. The schematic of the spray appeared in the air. The stars that hosted populated worlds delineated in various colors. Around the elderly specimen that lit this world, a blue circle appeared, followed by a white circle, to identify the star around which Novobantry orbited. Well done, the spray, the man said. I don't expect we'll see too many more visitors from your world. You probably won't see any, said Obron. There was a certain amount of attrition within the wizardly community just before and after the change, and then it turned out there was another complicating factor that by now may have eliminated the few remainders. Would that be, said the man behind the desk, an interplanar factor? It would, said Obron. And I would like to know your views on that issue before I say anything more. My views, said the man, would you not first like to know whose views those are? I know that already, said Oberon. You are Philidor, first of that name to hold the office of Archon of Old Earth. I'm somewhat surprised, the other man said. Not too many folk as far down the spray as Novo Bantry have heard of our mostly forgotten little world, let alone our governance. Technically, though, he continued, I am Archon of those parts of Old Earth, still inhabited by human beings, and since the change the population has declined considerably. Caslow spoke up now. But you have not suffered the devastation that struck Novobantry. No, said Philidor. Still, a distressingly large portion of the populace decided that they did not care to live without the devices that cushioned their lives— nor to inhabit a world in which they might run afoul of some spellcaster's caprice. He gestured to the walls. Out there lies the grand old city of Oakney. Many of its rooms, harboring the corpses of those who chose not to make the necessary adjustments. He sighed, and for a moment his gaze went inward. Then he returned to the matter at hand. Back to the interplanar factor, he said. I assumed that because, after you identified your world, Old Confustable whispered in my ear to remind me that Novo Bantry and Old Earth share a curious characteristic. They are two of the three worlds in the spray where the third and seventh planes are adjacent to each other. All the others, and there are thousands of them, are out in space. Obron's brows had risen. There is a third planet where whimsies can appear? The Archon waved away the question. A little ball of rock named Nestranko, down near New Gargano, 
completely disregarded, although if you're interested in such matters, it appears to have been the place where the Demiurge and his helpers designed and perfected the prototypes. He told the entity that functioned as an integrator to display Nestrangle on the schematic. Another glowing circle appeared, this one in green, much farther down the spray, almost to the back of beyond. Caslow was struggling to encompass new concepts. In the world he had known, it was customary to talk about the Demiurge as the initiating cause of all phenomenality. But the nature of this unmoved prime mover was taken as a pious fiction, a mythological construct to explain the unexplainable. Now his employer and this alleged ruler of humanity's supposed original home world were discussing the first cause as if it were an apparatusist with a corps of attendants that had worked on some negligible little speck of a world to build the whimsies that made interstellar travel possible. While the op had been thinking, the two practitioners of the arcane arts, for surely this Philidor had the air of a spell-slinger, had fallen into a discussion. Again, the op was hearing terms he could not define, although he could tell the dialogue was evolving into an argument, Obron using words like must and necessity, while Philidor threw back cannot and out of the question. Caslow interrupted. Wait, he said. The Demiurge? It's hard enough dealing with sympathetic association. Must I now move through a universe of myth? Philidor broke off the dispute to take another look at Caslow. Then he turned his gaze back to the wizard and said, So, not one of the fraternity? No talent, said Obron, but he has very good instincts when it comes to practical issues. Philidor addressed Caslow in a tone that was meant to be reassuring. Do not worry yourself about matters that need not concern you. Neither you nor your master will be delving further into that particular myth. His tone, when he turned back to Obron, was final. Not on my world. I do not act out of not-idle curiosity, the wizard said. There is a terrible threat to your world and mine. The threat, the Archon said has been dealt with, or rather, I should say threats, because there were two. The first was the device that became stuck in the membrane between this plane and the seventh. My predecessor and I deactivated the thing several years ago, before I assumed the office of Archon. The second threat was vitiated by an agent of mine shortly before the change. Magistrum... Philidor rubbed his palms together in a gesture of termination. Is no more. Obron blinked and looked about as if expecting sudden danger. You have no qualms in naming that name. You could shout it from the rooftops. It has become a term without a reference. All its powers evaporated. The Archon leaned back in his chair. That is why your journey has been a fool's errand. Your enemy no longer exists. Wrong, said Caslow. Now it was the Archon's turn to blink. I am not used to being contradicted, he said. Then prepare for a new experience, the op said. 
I know nothing about this magistrum, and next to nothing about the capacitor that was supposed to draw evil from the seventh plane and channel it for his purposes, but I do know that some power is alive and active in that realm, and it's doing its best to do its worst on our world. I wouldn't be surprised if it has plans for yours. He saw irritation rise in the old earther's face, but then he saw that reaction overtaken by a mind that had learned not to act without first obtaining a full understanding of the situation. Philidor studied the ring on his finger for a moment, then said, You had better tell me what you know. For the next several minutes, Caslo told the old earther all that had happened since he and Obron had taken up together. The thugs sent to steal Obron's Speculon, the deadly struggle for power of Novobantry's wizards before the change, the op's visit to the underworld, where Falun's shade still feared whatever lurked in the seventh plane, the attack of the fire elemental, and the pranes. Pranes? Philidor interrupted, and now he was sitting forward in his chair, his eyes bright, coming out of the other realm? and stealing people to take back with them, Caslow said. He told the Archon what had happened to the refugees in the village and of the entity whose touch had filled the op with sorrow and despair. The old earther's expression grew grave. When Caslow had finished, he looked to Obron. You have researched the question? As best I can, said the wizard and drawn conclusions. There is only one to be drawn. The Archon took a long inward breath and let it out, just as slowly. So Magistrum was not alone in his exile. Clearly not. I will need to look into this. Obron signaled assent, but added, There may not be much time. Philidor wore the look of a man who has to face yet another evil, just when he thought he had already done his full share of evil-facing. Old Confustable, he said, revive your dormant components that were active in the nineteenth eon. We have a problem. I am doing so, said the voice from the air, but I must advise that the problem is already being compounded. How so? said Philidor. For answer, a screen appeared in the air. On it formed an image that Caslow recognized as the terrace outside, where Sauntrance waited. The dragon had curled itself around the conveyance and appeared to be sleeping, but now the viewpoint pulled back to show not only the dragon, but the sky above and to the east of the Arcanate Palace. A bank of cumulus clouds had ramped up on the horizon and shone pink as they caught the last rays of the setting sun. But from within the rosy background, a dark spot now emerged and rushed toward the image's viewpoint, enlarging as it came. It had the form of a thick, boiling clot of dense black vapor. Old Confustable's percepts centered on the onrushing cloud and enlarged the view. Caslow saw shapes appearing and disappearing in the roiling motion of the black stuff, Arms with clawed, seven-fingered hands, a head crowned by spiked horns, and with an array of lidless eyes across its forehead. A mouth with two rows of triangular teeth, top and bottom, 
from which protruded a long, split tongue. What is that thing? the op asked. The voice from the air answered him in the same tone as it might have used to tell him the time of day. An inhabitant of the seventh plane. It would call itself an Athlanath. We would call it a demon. It does not look friendly, Caslow said. This time Philidor answered. It will not have come willingly into our plane. It has difficulty holding its form here and must strain to keep itself together. That process causes it to experience its equivalent of pain. It will be very angry and eager to end its discomfort. The Archon looked at Obron, who was staring at the screen in mixed fascination and horror as the pulsing cloud filled the frame. You were right, he said. There is something in the seventh plane that must be dealt with. The viewpoint pulled back to show the Athlanath entering the airspace over the palace. In moments, its speed and course would bring it to the terrace where Sontrance lay dozing. But now the dragon's eyes opened and its head lifted and turned toward the onrushing cloud. Sontrance pushed itself up and onto its hind legs, but could do no more. Though it opened its wings, it strained against an invisible restraint. Philidor said, Old Confustable, release the dragon. On the screen they saw Saunterance shake itself. Then it sprang into the sky, its great wings digging deep into the air as it drove itself in a rising spiral to gain height. Can it defeat the Athlanath? Obron asked Philidor. Probably not, was the reply. Can you do something to help? Probably, yes. Then please do said the wizard. I am fond of my dragon. The Archon spoke to his assistant. Old Confustable, are we prepared? Quite, said the voice from the air. But Philidor did not give an order. Caslow said, What are you waiting for? Obron knew the answer. He is waiting until we know for sure what is the demon's target, he said. Philidor nodded, his eyes on the screen. The Athlanath was bearing down on the place where the conveyance rested. The creature was even larger than Caslow had thought, and it seemed to be gaining greater control over its form. It now showed four long arms and two bandy legs, a thick torso, a short, heavy neck. The spikes on its head also continued down its back in two parallel rows. It slid down an incline toward the terrace, head first, and all four arms extended. But as it neared the conveyance, it pulled up sharply to hang vertical in the air, its head turning from side to side as if seeking something. Then it spotted Sontrance circling high above. The demon's mouth opened, and the split tongue vibrated. Even deep within a palace hewn from a mountain, Caslow could hear its roar. The screen showed the Athlanath shooting up into the sky, clawed hands spread to grapple with the dragon. Saunterance gave over its circling, folding its wings, and plummeted toward the attacker, leading with the talons of its hind feet. That settles that, said Philidor. You may open fire. From several places on the upper reaches of the Arcanate Palace, 
beams of coruscating energy of an eye-straining ultraviolet shot through with gold and silver sparks reached up to converge on and surround the rising demon. The creature was momentarily limbed black against a surrounding aura. It swatted at the beams like a man beset by a cloud of midges. Then it pulsed twice and lost cohesion. Head, limbs, torso, hands, feet, all became puffs of black smoke that dissipated in the wind of its own passage. The energy beams ceased. The purple aura disappeared, and Saunterance plunged hind feet first through the emptiness that moments before had been filled with raging demon. The dragon opened its wings, braked against the air, and descended to land lightly beside the conveyance. It craned its neck to examine the sky in all directions, then lay down, curled itself once more around the shining dome, yawned, and closed its eyes. The screen in the Archon's chamber winked out. Philidor sat in his chair, his chin in one hand, while the other tapped its beringed index finger against the desk top. Caslow saw him come to some conclusion. Then look up at Obron. Well, the Archon said, you and I need to make some plans. Yes, said the wizard. Caslow had a question. Those energy beams. They looked like ison cannons. Philidor said, But of course, ison cannons are impossible in an age of sympathetic association. Then how? This is old earth. Events that may have transpired once or twice on the foundational domains have happened here many times. We have developed... His hand stirred the air as he sought for the right word. Let's say, workarounds. Caslow wanted to know more, but the man's attitude said the information would not be forthcoming. The op turned his practical mind toward the realities of the situation. As Philidor and Obron put their heads together, he said, The attack at least tells us something useful. The wizard and the archon turned toward him, as if he were a bumptious youngster interrupting an adult conversation. Caslow fought down a flash of irritation and maintained a professional demeanor. It tells us first that he has to send an agent rather than come himself, as he did with the men who attacked Obron, the fire elemental, and the Pranes. True, said Philidor, which means which means that he cannot or dare not leave the seventh plane. Very good, said the Archon. What else? This time he attacked our transportation, Caslow said, which tells us he does not want us to come to him. At least not in the impervious conveyance, Philidor said. On the other hand... Now it was Caslow's turn to interrupt. On the other hand, that may be exactly what he wants us to think, because his real goal may be to draw us to him so that we arrive overconfident in a place where he has the strength to deal with us once and for all. The Archon looked to Obron. You were right. His instincts are indeed good. To Caslow, he said, So what would you recommend? 
There is only one thing to do, the op said. We go to find him, but without expecting an easy time of it. It may be a trap. Obron said, You always say no one wins a war by defending. It looks as if our enemy intends to do just that. Haslow shrugged. There may be different rules for different planes. So there are, said Philidor. He spoke to his assistant. I want the complete history of the destruction of Ambit by Magistrum's Cabal of Thaumaturges. The screen appeared again and instantly filled with text and images. Philidor glanced at it, then said, But we now know it is not complete, don't we? Magistrum was not the only survivor of the disaster. Old Confustable said, The records are reliable. The names and fates of all his associates are accounted for. No, said Obron. Something has been left out, some detail, and behind that detail hides a monster. Philidor agreed. It would be good to know just what kind of monster that is. Before, said Caslow, we have to face it. Welcome back. You've been listening to Paul Bamer reading The Archon by Matthew Hughes. We hope you enjoyed it. If so, please help spread the word by leaving a review or rating at iTunes or the social media venue of your choice. Lightspeed Magazine is edited by John Joseph Adams. If you are not already a subscriber to our Hugo Award-winning magazine, check out our many options at lightspeedmagazine.com slash subscribe. Skyboat Media, the most respected independent audio production team on the West Coast, produces the stories for this podcast. They are headed by the Audi and Grammy Award-winning narrators Stefan Rudnicki and Gabrielle DeCure. Check out their website at skyboatmedia.com. Music and sound logos are composed and performed by Jack Kincaid. Post-production for Lightspeed is in association with yours truly. Lightspeed Year One includes all of the podcasts from Lightspeed's first year. This audiobook story collection is available from audible.com as well as downpour.com. Just search for Lightspeed and you're on your way. Our podcast this week is sponsored by our friends at Tor. This podcast is copyright 2015 by Lightspeed Magazine. Thanks for listening. That's all for now. See you on the Bitstream. I'm Jim Freund, wishing you cheers from all of us at Lightspeed. Hey there, it's Rachel Ballinger, and I am extremely excited to invite you to Rachel Uncensored. It's my podcast where I sit down and get real with my friends and celebrity guests, where we talk about all sorts of topics. And sometimes we might be under the influence when we do so. We cover things from personal stories to hot button issues. And it's the only place on the internet you can find an uncensored version of me. It's a side of me that you might not have seen before because it's not the most family or brand friendly. But don't worry, I'm still sort of slightly a decent human being. If you're intrigued, then make sure you check it out. 
New episodes drop every Wednesday. You can find it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Trust me, you won't want to miss out on the fun and candid conversations we have here on Rachel Uncensored.